The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. This is another live Clubland Q&A here on Stein Online. It is just after 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That is noon on Friday for those of you in British Columbia or along the Pacific Northwest. Or uh, We don't like talking about the Californians, but those of you as well. It is uh, 4 p.m. in New... No, 4.30 in Newfoundland. It's 4 p.m. in Halifax. And if you cross the Atlantic, we've got 8 p.m. in London and Belfast and Dublin. We've got 9 p.m. in Munich and Zurich and 10 p.m. in Kiev, as we are supposed to say now, as well as Moscow. So you can uh, go ahead and cancel me as a Russian agent for knowing the time in Moscow. And as uh, Mark always says, for the Newfoundlanders that move to Iran for the half-hour time zone, it is 11.30 in Tehran. So a, a good evening to all of the uh, Iranians in the Mark Stein Club. I don't know how many there are, but we welcome you nonetheless. I am, if you have not been able to tell, Andrew Lawton sitting in for Mark to give your uh, obligatory Canadian state-mandated Canadian content. If you've been following any of what Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are doing, you'll know they are in the process of regulating the internet beyond what's ever been done before. And one of the regulations involves mandatory Canadian content on uh, online publishers. So uh, we are making sure we are C11 compliant here on Stein Online so that uh, Justin Trudeau doesn't freeze the bank accounts like he does to uh, Canadian truckers. So that is our uh, that is our solemn token that we offer to uh, His Majesty's government in Canada. But I am going to, over the next now, what is it, 57 and a half minutes, take your questions on anything and everything. And if uh, tradition is any indication of future events, there will be those who did not read the first line in the post to submit their questions for Mark, who is uh, not uh, here right now, but I will do my best to answer them. And I won't even subject you to my attempt at Mark's accent. I feel like I would never be invited back as a guest host if I, uh, if I tried such a thing. Uh, thank you to all of you, though. Uh, let me get a, a question here from Eric Dale, who writes, Andrew and fellow club members, what are your thoughts regarding the quote-unquote voluntary buyback? of farms in the Netherlands. How exactly is taking perfectly good farmland and paving it over good for the environment? Have the Dutch people considered what their own lifestyles will be like when there is considerably less dairy and meat being produced? As you are Canadian, I think your people, I don't can you say you people, your people? I don't know. Your people would know a thing or two about how fertile arable topsoil is a much scarcer resource than most people would imagine. Well, so as a Canadian, I, I know very well the problems of quote-unquote voluntary. Because, I mean, I'm in the midst right now as a, as a firearms owner in Canada of uh, witnessing a voluntary buyback that if not enough people subject themselves to the voluntary buyback, it becomes a permanent buyback before long. As I was reading Eric's question, I was reminded of the old uh, Joni Mitchell song, which I've never liked about, you know, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. And it was funny because that song used to be like a left-wing anthem against doing what the left now celebrates, which is paving natural environments, paving nature, and uh, putting up something that is unrecognizable to the original natural use of it all. And I mean, the, the Dutch thing is absurd because if you read the, the wording from the government, it's, uh, you know, we want to close down 3,000 of what they call the peak polluting farms. 
And it's a voluntary buyback. You can voluntarily sell it at 100% market value to the government. And if you don't voluntarily sell it this year, then next year it becomes involuntary. So, I mean, why, why even bother with the voluntary? Why even do this ruse of uh, we're pretending that you have a choice in the matter? When in less than 12 months' time, you will have no choice. The government will still get in and get the farmland from you. Maybe you'll get a little bit of money, but you'll lose your livelihood, and the country itself loses all of these farms. And it's actually fascinating. If you watch the whole you know, alternative meat racket that has existed and, and got a ton of investment capital from people like Bill Gates, it was being uh, bolstered by folks at the, the World Economic Forum, and all of these companies that were selling alternatives to meat are tanking now. They, they were having a moment, they were coming up with innovations, they were getting investment dollars, and all of them now are proving to be about a, as wise an investment as a waterfront, as oceanfront property in Saskatchewan would be. And the fascinating thing about all of this is that it's because you cannot fundamentally dupe consumers for that long. Once they start seeing through that it's a fad, they don't want anything to do with it. They, they don't want this highly processed, even if it's convincing for the first bite and a half, alternative to a beef burger. If they want a beef burger, they actually want a beef burger. So this war on farming is the opposite of the sustainability that we're all told has to be front and center in public policy. And they don't seem to care about that inconsistency. I mean, these are the folks that want sustainable, sustainable, sustainable. And farming is by definition sustainable because the farmers are motivated on doing what they're doing sustainably so that they have a farm in five years. And the least sustainable thing to happen to these farms is when people like Bill Gates start buying up farmland, and now Mark Rutte in the Netherlands is buying up farmland, and the United Kingdom is talking about trying to phase out of farmland, and Canada is just putting in right now this supposedly temporary approach to reducing nitrogen and reducing fertilizer usage and all of that. And at a certain point, this voluntary temporary measure will become both permanent and involuntary. So absolutely, there is a very real war on farming here. And it'll take, I mean, it's a lagging indicator, as they say. It'll take some time before people realize all the damage that's been done when these uh, products that are already scarce on grocery store shelves are all of a sudden nowhere to be found. Jamie writes uh, about the Kanye fiasco. What do you think about it? I have a high tolerance, Jamie writes, for a high tolerance level for the things we're supposed to cancel people over. But his latest comments are beyond the pale. I had hoped that he might be a way for Trump to connect with the traditionally Democrat voters who care for whatever reason what celebrities think. I, I believe that's supposed to be think. So <laughs> I actually... So just to give you the backstory here, if, you, if you've missed it, this week Kanye West has just continued to push himself beyond the, as, as Jamie writes, beyond the pale. He was on Alex Jones's show and managed to do something very impressive. He made Alex Jones look like the sane one on Alex Jones's show because uh, Kanye was up there talking in, in no uncertain terms about how he likes Hitler and he thinks, you know, Hitler did some great things and uh, all of this stuff. And uh, Alex Jones was like, well, I don't know. No, no, the Nazis were bad. And then uh, Kanye is like, well, no, actually, the Nazis were fine. And uh, Alex Jones is just getting like increasingly nervous that he is not able to tame Kanye, who for whatever reason was wearing like a full not even like a balaclava. He was like, it was like a full facial covering thing as he went on Alex Jones' show and talked about how great the, the Nazis were. And I mean, Kanye has been in a downward spiral for years, but, but even in the last couple of months, it, it's been clear that this uh, anti-Semitism thing is not just a, a little phase he's going through, and not that that would be excusable. And it's not something where he's just you, you know, kind of pushing things right up to the line. No, he, he's going uh, f further past the line than most people ever would dare to, which I, I think is that old line about how if someone shows you who they are, believe them. And uh, he, he surrounded himself with a bunch of, you know, bona fide white supremacists. And this meeting at the Mar-a-Lago Mar with Trump, I thought was just a, a profoundly stupid thing for Trump to take given the circumstances. But I, I'm going to actually claim vindication 
on the Kanye thing, because I remember having this conversation actually on the Mark Stein cruise in, I can't remember if it was 2018 or 2019, when Michelle Bachman was saying that, you know, she thought it was great that Kanye ha had come over and was talking about all the right things and taking photos with Trump and all that. And I said, yeah, it's fine. If Kanye wants to be a Republican and vote for Trump, I, I don't really care. But I objected to all of the conservatives who had, you know, never listened to a Kanye song in their life flocking to him saying, wow, see, yeah, conservatives are hip too. Republicans are hip. We're winning. We're, we're winning. We're going to out celebrity, the Democrats and, and people that thought this was a meaningful thing that should be embraced as opposed to like, okay, great. He's here. He's on our side. So what? And I said that conservatives are going to regret wrapping Basically, conservatives are going to regret adopting Kanye West. And I, now, admittedly, I didn't predict it would go as poorly as it had, but I, I think, still think the point I made stands. And there are two reasons for this. Number one, the whole argument that conservatives should be putting forward with celebrities is not that, wow, it's great that uh, some of them might say a conservative thing once every five years. We should be putting the argument forward that what they think about politics really doesn't matter. Because we're never going to win the celebrity game against the Democrats. And I mean, Mark made this joke on, I think it was Fox News some years ago, that the list of conservative celebrities used to be just a napkin that had Pat Boone and one of the Oak Ridge's boys written on it. And the amusing part of that is that after he said that, like the one of the Oak Ridge boys that he was talking about uh, tweeted him, and I still can't remember which one it was. So the, the argument was always that conservative celebrities is a bit of a, an oxymoron, or at the very least a, a misnomer. And so what conservatives do is they get very excited if, you know, someone all of a sudden tweets, oh, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the tax plan put forward by this Republican is good. And we assume that this person is going to be on our side when I mean, if that's the game we play, we're going to be losing it because, you know, like them or not, all of the celebrities who are successful in the world of entertainment are there because they are in that little club. They're all hosting fundraisers for Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And uh, as a result, the Republicans tend to get the B-listers or the C-listers or the, the Z, 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 I don't, I, I, now I don't know if we're doing Canadian content or not on the alphabet, but all of the, the Z slash Z-listers. So I, I think that the way you have to deal with this is by rejecting the premise, not by trying to play the game with them, because if you try to play the game with them, you're going to lose. And as a result, you end up with people like Kanye that you've said are the ones we should all be listening to. And then he comes out and says, oh, maybe he's not actually a sane person, or maybe he's not actually a model person, or maybe he believes some terrible things. And anyone who said, you know, Kanye was the future of the Republican Party has a tremendous amount of egg on their face, whether it was made on a farm or, or made in, in Bill Gates' lab. I'll, I'll let you decide for yourselves. And I, again, I, I don't really care about Kanye West. And, and I, I would love to actually not have to care even the slightest about anything he's saying or doing. I mean, like, there's been this theory that, oh, now he's been this uh, plant for many years and he's trying to expose the right. And I, I, I actually just think he's a guy who is genuinely mentally unwell. I think that he is not someone that we have to defend just because we get so used to uh, saying that we object to cancel culture. And I don't think he actually matters. And, and I think that it's a tremendous, a tremendous disadvantage that anyone said in the last four years that what he thinks about politics might matter, because I think it's that very phenomenon that created the problem that we have with Kanye right now. Uh, we got a message from Todd here who says, oh, this is a long one. I will try to uh, get through it all or, and accurately summarize it. He says, a question for the club's Deputy Assistant Undersecretary General of Canadian Firearms Affairs. I think I got a promotion there, Todd. Thank you. Of, of Canadian Firearms Affairs. The assault on legal firearm ownership has ratcheted up once again with last-minute amendments to Bill C-21, essentially prohibiting all semi-automatic rifles and shotguns. The evergreen nature of the legislation prohibiting all um oh here we go leaves the door open to prohibit any additional firearms in the future this latest action doesn't just impact sport shooters like myself but now millions of hunters and rural canadians as well 
Uh, every, I'm sorry. I, I just I want to get to the the substance of this, so I'm I'm reading it and getting across here. Uh, my questions: Has the liberal elite, liberal and NDP leadership, overplayed this firearms issue and invited a popular backlash? not just from millions of affected sports shooters and rural Canadians, but also the population at large. Draconian vaccine mandates didn't do it, and honestly, I think it's doubtful to be the firearms issue. But is there a third rail they could possibly touch some remaining universal aspect of Canadian life and values? That uh, if Trudeau completely broke it, then a sufficient and course-changing response might be ignited. Canada's Maloney moment. So... I'll try to set the stage here because Americans will be just so utterly baffled when I describe the gun laws in Canada, which is to say that we have very strict and stringent licensing. And as Todd mentions, who, who he says in his question here, he's a gun owner. Uh, Canadian gun owners are very rigorously vetted and screened, and the government actually runs daily background checks on Canadian gun license holders. And if anything comes up in that thing that wasn't there yesterday, they can very quickly move in and take away people's guns. So uh, it's very difficult in, I mean, compared to the US, compared to most states in Canada to get a gun. Once you uh, have your license, if you're getting something that's restricted, like a, a handgun uh, before they're completely illegal, which they effectively are now, or, uh, you know, the AR-15s before they were prohibited, you'd have to go through some extra steps and it would have to be registered to your name and there was a, a transfer process. And what the Liberals have done in the last uh, three years is they've systematically gone through and tried to prohibit huge numbers of firearms. It started in May of 2020 when they just, with the stroke of a pen, the Canadian equivalent of an executive order, prohibited 1,500 types of firearms. Most of them were semi-automatic rifles that just looked scary, the AR-15, the Mini-14. And when they did this, they made it so that you could not take them out of your house. You could not take them to a gun range. If you own them legally, you couldn't do anything with them. And I had a couple in that category. I still do. And gun stores that had inventory of these things could not sell it and could not return it. Now, it has been more than two years since that. It's been two years and seven months. And the gun businesses in Canada that had, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars of inventory on these guns still have them sitting in their warehouse. So the liberals don't think of the facts or the long-term implications here. So what the liberals did is they prohibited those. And then they added more guns to the list. And then they went after handguns and now have prohibited any purchases or transfers of handguns. So if you have one, you're able to keep using it, but you cannot buy a new one. Now, uh, interestingly enough, when they announced they were doing this ban, I bought another one and I bought it, I believe, in August and they initiated the paperwork for it. Now, the paperwork is normally a, a couple of days, but the government has still been sitting on the paperwork for this since August, and I still don't have the gun, because there's such a backlog, because Justin Trudeau has actually sold more guns than any other salesperson in Canadian history ever could have, as is true in the U.S. as well. Whenever people think the government is going after their guns, they go out and buy more of them. So there is like a, a six-month-long wait to get uh, your hands on a gun that you've legally purchased in Canada because the so many people have bought them, thanks to Justin Trudeau. And then the latest change, and this is what Todd's asking about here, is that they're going after virtually any semi-automatic rifle or shotgun in Canada, which, if you know firearms, includes a heck of a lot of guns that are used for hunting. They're not used for uh, killing. They're not used in gang applications in downtown Toronto. They're used for hunting, for ranching. And all of these lies that the Liberal government told for years, we're not going after hunters, we're not going after sports shooters, are proven to be an absolute lie. And what they're doing is trying to go after this very systematically. And at a certain point, you'll be left with, uh, you know, just your great-great-great-grandfather's uh, revolutionary war musket, which had been willed down for generations. And that will be the only legal gun remaining. And then you give it three weeks and great-great-great-grandpa's uh, musket will be prohibited as well. And, and this is incrementalism 
working in favor of the liberals. And you, I mean, again, the problem in Canada, though, and, and this is why I, I'm pessimistic that Todd's theory here, that this will be the, the bridge too far for people, actually holds, is because in Canada, gun owners are a very small minority. There are 2.2 million licensed gun owners in Canada, a country just shy of 40 million people. And I, I'm sorry to say those are, are mostly conservatives, but not enough to tip the balance in any election. So... What happens is Canadians are dealing with a complete majoritarian impulse that all of these voters in Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal who have never seen a gun or met a gun owner in their lives are able to set the agenda and it's uh, gun owners like Todd and, and like myself that have to pay the price. And, and people, when they do not, when they see that it hasn't affected gun crime at all, which is what happens. I mean, the last two years, uh, we've had the prohibitions of the evil, scary AR-15s, and it has not done anything to stop gun crime in downtown Toronto. Their response is not, wow, this gun control stuff didn't work. Their response is, well, I guess we didn't go far enough. I guess we should have done more. And it's the same as they do on COVID. When all of these COVID measures fail to do anything to stop transmission of COVID, they say, well, I guess the problem was that we didn't go far enough. We needed more mask mandates. We needed more vaccine mandates. They don't just say, well, maybe, maybe we were on the wrong track on this stuff in the first place. So, I mean, I did an interview just the other day with the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, with uh, Pierre Polyev. And Pierre Polyev has, has said all the right things on this. He's for law-abiding gun owners. He wants to roll it back. But, I mean, the problem is that there isn't an election scheduled in Canada until 2025, by which time the government will have managed to successfully disarm most Canadians to such a point where there really is no functional rolling back of this. So... My approach to this issue is that the best thing gun owners can do is just delay the process long enough that an election could bring in a government that is prepared to stop it altogether. So uh, this is one of those areas where I'm actually okay with bureaucracy doing what, <laughs> what bureaucracy does. Uh, let's see, George writes, uh, Andrew, no question, just some advice. Next time you're over in Europe, you might want to pick up a Javelin missile or three to have handy when Justin comes rolling your way. Well, I, I think actually, George, that the Javelin missile uh, was also banned by Bill C-21. So my, uh, my Javelin missile procurement program, uh, I'll have to, to reevaluate there. <laughs> but I, uh, I thank you the, uh, for the suggestion nonetheless. Uh, let me see here. Elisa writes, if I were to show up to an event dressed like Winnie Mandela, should I be surprised if someone were to ask me if I were an African? Follow up, do you think that uh, Ngozi Falani, who has an atypical British name and style, really baited Lady Sarah Hussey into a trap so that she, Falani, could make a bigger name for herself in the racist activism world? Will uh, Ngozi Falani be able to get on a lucrative speaking circuit on a so slight a racial slight? So slight, it's invisible. Well, I, I thank you for that question, Elisa. And yeah, when I saw the photo of what Ms. Falani was wearing at the event. It was a very traditional, uh, what I would see, to my, not being an expert, but what I would see a, as being a, a, an ethnic garb from Africa. So it's the type of attire that would, I think, invite questions as to where you're from, and, and not even just where the person you're talking to was born, but what is the ancestry into which they are tapping as they address in such a certain way. And I, I don't think that's an unreasonable question. Now, I, you know, the, the most charitable defense I've heard of what happened to Lady Sarah is that your job is to be a hostess and your job is to make guests feel comfortable. And anything you do that makes a guest feel uncomfortable, it's not about, you know, is she a racist or not, but was she doing her job as, as you know, an ambassador to the palace? And I, I think that's a fair enough, I think that's a fair enough concern. I mean, obviously, if guests are feeling uncomfortable based on a line of questioning, that isn't a particularly uh, hospitable way to, to treat people. But I, I don't buy into the fact that this woman's six decades of service should be washed away because of this very spurious accusation of racism. And I, I would agree with what Mark and uh, Samantha Smith said on GB News earlier this week, which is that 
the capitulation to the mob by the Prince of Wales and by King Charles III is absolutely despicable. I mean, uh, you know, you have to think Prince William was raised with this woman. I, I mean, th like, literally, this is, this is the godmother. King Charles, as for most of his life, for all of his adult life, had Lady Sarah as a very tight servant in the broadest sense of his family. And for there to be, instead of any support whatsoever, this outright capitulation is absolutely shameful. And when I look at this, and I, I don't see myself as being surprised by it at all, but I, I saw on Twitter, and I, I can't remember her name right now. I, I should have pulled it up in anticipation of this. But there was a, a woman who herself was, I believe, black, who used to work for, she said, uh, Ngozi Falani who said that she was an absolutely horrid boss to work with, very demanding, very demeaning, and uh, not a particularly pleasant or supportive or uplifting person. And, and I, I do feel that we're talking about a woman here who wanted the fight. And there are some people that go around in life and they want the fight under every circumstance imaginable. And if that's the case, then Lady Sarah's crime is not detecting it sooner in the line of questioning and disengaging. And I mean, that's assuming that the exchange happened as it, it happened. Remember that the only characterization of this question that has really become discussed is the uh, loose transcript created after the fact by Ms. Filani. So I don't actually buy into the fact that uh, this thing necessarily happened the way we were all told it happened. And uh, as to the question of, you know, was this a trap so that she could make a bigger name for herself? Well, I hadn't heard of her a week ago, and now I and most other people in the Commonwealth know who she is. So take from that what you will. Ian writes, Hi, Andrew. I asked a version of this last week, but Mark wasn't able to answer as most of the cues were on the 20th anniversary. We recently had the publication of the UK's most popular baby names, and once again, the winner was Muhammad for the most popular boy's name. No equivalent for the girls. A win for the sex-selective abortion lobby, I guess. What will it take for a meaningful discussion in the UK media and the UK political sphere on these demographic changes or elsewhere for that matter should we accept now that this will never happen and we all just pretend not to notice forever ian well thank you for for asking that ian and obviously this is is mark's wheelhouse as, as a demographics question but I'll, I'll do my best to weigh in on it i remember I, I i didn't see this particular list so i i don't know if it was structured the the way others are but i've seen some in the past that are, are quite amusing because you think oh well yeah you know muhammad is only the number two name and then number three is muhammad with a u and number four is muhammad with an a and then an e and number five is muhammad with a, an o and then an, like it's just it's actually amusing because they're, they're in you know multiple places on the list and i, I think the reality is that right now to even ask questions is considered racist. To ask a question is considered to be a, a terrible thing. I, I mean, like we were saying with the whole uh, Lady Sarah Hussey versus Ngozi Filani business, you can even ask someone for an entirely innocent reason, the question, where are you, are, where are you from? And that will be enough to cancel your six decades of public service for the royal family and if you say well you know what what is this what does this trend mean you're met with the indignation that uh, Sajid Javid gave when talking about some of the broader demographic trends in the UK which is to say so what uh, so what as if there isn't a problem and I, I think you know I go back often to what happened in Germany in 2015 and other European countries as well. This was the year of just mass unchecked migration. Uh, it was, you know, refugees were, were the flavor of the day in countries like Canada, Germany, Sweden, other parts of Europe as well, predominantly. And some of the issues that happened there, mass sexual assaults, uh, you know, economic challenges, uh, socio-cultural challenges in, in communities that just could not withstand such a large population shock. And you know, the question I asked and a lot of other people asked is, are you surprised by this? Why did you not think this would cause a meaningful and noticeable change to your communities and to your societies? And 
there was a, a huge controversy in Canada back in 2015 when the conservative government under Stephen Harper was seeking re-election. They ended up losing to Justin Trudeau. And they included very heavily in the campaign this idea of instilling Canadian values in the immigration process. And they had set up a, a tip line for people to call and report what were identified as barbaric cultural practices, namely female genital mutilation, which was happening in, in large numbers in Canada relative to what you'd expect to happen in a little Western liberal democracy. And uh, what was the result? To this day, the Canadian media holds this whole discussion up as an example of racism, that, that you cannot talk about these issues. You cannot talk about different cultures as perhaps having different moral value without it being seen as some racist crusade. And, and I, I think that what's happened in the UK is very similar to what's happened in Canada there. And it, it's not about being anti-immigrant. It's certainly not about being anti-Muslim immigrant. It's about in, insisting on your country having a set of values that anyone going to that country is willing to adopt and live by. And that, I think, is the big problem. I mean, if, if Muhammad were the number one name in Britain and every single Muhammad there said, you know, I love uh, freedom and liberal democratic values, I, I wouldn't actually care. Because to me, it's not a racial issue. It is a cultural issue. And when you have cultural incompatibility, that is the, the problem. But again, that's a level of nuance that uh, you just can't have a discussion of in the media. Uh, we have a message from Kirk here, who writes, Dear Mark and Andrew, well, you're, you're markless right now, but I will uh, do my best here. Uh, why can't conservatives and Republicans jettison Donald Trump? He is political poison, radioactive. The latest results will be seen on Tuesday when his Senate pick in Georgia will lose, giving the Dems 51 seats when the GOP should have easily won control of the upper chamber. And it isn't that Trump doesn't give enough reason, e.g. dinner with Nick Fuentes. Conservatives, Republicans dirty themselves ethically, morally, and politically by sticking with this eight-year moron child, to quote Ann Coulter. Trump should be in jail. I, I don't go along with the idea that Trump should be in jail, but I, I sadly don't disagree with the idea that he is uh, politically poisonous right now. And I, I think he has done... I, I talked about this a lot when I guest hosted two weeks ago, and I, I said... If you support Ron DeSantis because you support Ron DeSantis, fine. If you support Ron DeSantis because you believe that you'd actually like Trump, but you think Ron DeSantis is a more palatable version, you are misguided. And, and the reason I said that is because you, you can't de-Trump Trump. You can't take what makes Trump successful or made him successful out of the equation and expect that you're going to still get the results. Now, that being said, I, I also think that Trump has made some tremendous miscalculations in the last uh, six months, and, and I'd say even in the last six days. And, and this Kanye business is uh, just one of those, meeting with Kanye and this Fuentes character who I'd never even heard of before, like two weeks ago, and now I, I've, I've learned a little bit more about. But I don't think Donald Trump gets to claim ignorance on that because you can't get within, you know, 10 city blocks of a president without being vetted in, from every which direction. So I, I think that the problem with Donald Trump that I had, and I, and I talked about this two weeks ago, is not the, oh, well, he tweets mean things and, oh, he's not civil and, oh, he's, uh, you know, not presidential. No. My issue with Donald Trump was that I don't actually think he believes in anything resembling a, a cohesive political ideology. And I think we saw that through his endorsements. He was more interested in promoting himself than promoting some vision, whereas I believe someone like Ron DeSantis is actually a, a movement conservative. Now, I realize that the uh, you know conservative Inc. group is going to be a bit challenging to deal with, and I, I don't think we need to just corporatize the conservative movement more than it already has been. But the concern that I'm raising here is that if you just believe that you could take the good of Trump and not the bad, you're missing the mark of what he did. And just to excuse me for one moment here, I just have to take a sip of water.
there. I'm sorry about that. I, I don't have the benefit of throwing to a commercial or something on the the live Q&A. So maybe I'll need to do what uh, Rush used to do and get some musical parodies <laughs> thrown in there. Uh, but I, I, I think you're, you're, I mean, I appreciate the question, Kirk, and I would invite people to weigh in in the comments when this show is posted on that, because I know that's very polarizing. I have one friend who's been a, a longtime uh, Trump supporter and has actually golfed at uh, Trump's golf club and has like, you know, a few photos with, with Trump. But I sent him a message and I said, you know, which way are you going on this? And he just responded with a photo of him and Donald Trump at the golf course and said, you know, through to the end. So I think there is still a fair bit of Trump loyalty out there. Carla writes, I saw some people online saying that Justin Trudeau committed perjury when he was testifying before the inquiry. Can you offer any further information? Will he be held accountable for it? Well, Carla, the answer to the last question is always no with Justin Trudeau. He's never held accountable for, for anything. But the, the context of this is that, uh, as you know by now, I've talked about it in the past, there was this uh, commission, this inquiry going on, and, and technically still is, although the, the bulk of it's over now, into Justin Trudeau's usage of the wartime powers, basically, of the Emergencies Act to deal with the uh, trucker convoy in Ottawa in February. And uh, Justin Trudeau took the stand for, I think it was like four and a half or five hours, and while he was on the stand, he, he generally did quite well. He, he didn't do like the drama teacher routine he usually does when he's uh, doing a press conference. And what happened was he, he was asked by the lawyer representing the truckers why, about the situation where he had called people who were unvaccinated names. And, and Justin Trudeau very calmly said, I've, I've never called people who are unvaccinated names. And if you were watching that, you'd be like, what like, what planet are you living on? There was a, a clip where during the election, literally during a federal election, he gets up there and he talks about these people who are anti-science, they're racist, they're misogynist, they're sexist, they're, they're unvaccinated. And he was actually taking aim at people he didn't like because they dared to make a medical choice for themselves that ran contrary to the official narrative. And he said this so brazenly. And it was just absolute revisionist history. And, and, you know, people were saying, oh, I believe he's perjured himself because he blatantly lied. And uh, the, the ex excuse for that is that he left himself just enough ambiguity when he said what who I was talking about there was the really, really bad one. So the people that I guess are, you know, protesting him, perhaps, I don't know. But it wasn't actually, he claimed, a, a blanket statement about people who are unvaccinated. And I, again, all of it is, you know, it, it's damning in a way, but fundamentally it just doesn't matter because people have already decided after this many years in power that they are okay with Justin Trudeau being Justin Trudeau. And he's almost the anti-Trump in that respect, where, you know, the people that like him just say, oh, well, that's just Justin. I, I, I stand with him. I don't need to worry about or bother about any of the stuff that he says that's not true. I've just decided he's the guy, and that is that. Simon writes, hi, Andrew. Can conservatives around the world or in the UK ever recover? Is it meant to be, it is meant to be common sense rather than left or right, but at some point the good wholesome value of old-fashioned conservatism seems to have parted company, especially since Thatcher left Downing Street. This is, I guess, the fundamental problem of the conservative movement in, I mean, anywhere, basically. I'll say in the English-speaking worlds. I don't know Australia as much, but I know the dynamics in the UK and Canada and the United States and, and even in other parts of Europe, like France and, and the Netherlands. I've, I've paid fairly close attention to these coalitions that develop. And, and the problem is that all conservatives, all conservatives in the capital C sense, which, I mean, in Canada, by the way, it's literally the Conservative Party of Canada. So in, in Canada, there's a, a particularly difficult time uh, people like me have in, in drawing a distinction between the conservative movement and, and the conservative party. But in general, people that identify themselves with a party are always going to be disappointed. And whether they admit it or not, people that identify as, as party first before any other cohesive set of values typically want to be in power before they want to stand up for anything or do anything. And if I, if you can please, you know, indulge me on the Canadian content, I, the Conservative Party of Canada has gone through in the last seven years, I believe five leaders, 
and I let me let me do the math on this because Stephen Harper uh, retired after the 2015 election and then was replaced by an interim leader in Ronna Ambrose. And then there was a new leader, Andrew Scheer, who ran in the 2019 election. And then after Andrew Scheer, there was uh, another uh, interim. Or no, after Andrew Scheer, there was Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader. And then after Aaron O'Toole, there was the interim leader, Candace Bergen. And I think we're up to six now, actually, because Pierre Polyev just became the leader of the Conservative Party. And, you know, Stephen Harper w was very strong as a prime minister, did a lot of things that I, I don't think were particularly good, but did a lot of things that were. Th they got worse after that because Andrew Scheer gets in there in 2019. He's a solid social conservative, but he could not articulate any view on anything when he was asked. And, and at the first sign of pushback from the mainstream media, he just buckled. Aaron O'Toole was the answer to the question, who's worse than Andrew Scheer? Because he actually just completely flipped on his beliefs in the election and all these things he had been telling himself and telling people about being a rock-ribbed conservatives ended up just being completely untrue. And what happened is anytime I would raise these criticisms, and, and I don't identify with a, a party at all. I, I'm a commentator, I'm a journalist, but I would identify these problems and the closer it got to an election, the more pushback I'd get from people who wanted me to just shut up because the conservative was supposedly better than Justin Trudeau. And, and my answer to that was always that, you know, I don't have a team. If you want to be tribal, that's, that's your choice, but I don't have any interest in being that way. And the other part of that is that if you start settling for someone just because they are marginally, and by the way, I mean, I, I, I dispute that premise, but just because they're marginally better than the liberal, you, you've already lost. Because you're, you're actually saying that you don't think these politicians should have any incentive to stand up for things that do matter. And the one thing that I, I think a lot of politicians can learn from, from Ron DeSantis is actually trying to put the media on defense and, and he has a very good way of doing this in press conferences that Pierre Polyev in Canada has a little bit of although Polyev's been just like avoiding the press conferences which uh, gets them to all uh, gets all the Ottawa journalists to you know, be very be very angry at him all the time which I guess they would be doing anyway but I think that all of this is is part of a larger a larger portrait here which is that conservatism cannot just survive on the old idea of just offer some tax cuts and say you're going to cut red tape and expect that that's going to be enough because people have challenges that are far more complex in that. And, and I think that the failure of so-called conservative politicians to stand firm against vaccine mandates was an example of this. I mean, who the hell cares what your marginal tax rate is if you don't have a job because you lost it to a vaccine mandate? Who the hell cares about all of these things that are so inconsequential? Like, ooh, I've got a, a tax credit for retrofitting my home with energy-efficient windows. Great. But uh, it's illegal for me to go to church because the government has shut it down. So COVID actually illuminated some very real challenges, and so many conservative politicians were just unwilling to take those challenges on. Got a message here from Andy who writes, I believe Andy with uh, with an IE, so I, I believe this is a, a female Andy. Do you have high hopes for Elon Musk as Twitter's free speech savior? I've been concerned about the brain hacking stuff uh, Eva Vlardingerbrook was writing about earlier this week. So I think in some ways my, my comments on Kanye West can apply to Elon Musk. Not that I, I think the two are at all in the same ballpark. And I actually believe uh, uh, Elon has like zapped Kanye's Twitter account this uh, this morning or something. I saw something like that just a minute before I uh, went on air here. But it, I, I don't believe in lionizing celebrities. And I, I don't believe in, uh, you know, saying that anyone is going to be a, a savior of, of anything except for Jesus, which I, I don't believe applies to, to Elon Musk or any other billionaire. I think Elon Musk is doing some very good things on Twitter. I think Elon took over a company that uh, was absolutely terrible, was uh, being very inconsistent in its censorship of people, and had clearly a lot of very 
bureaucratic impulses because he managed to lay off 75% of Twitter's workforce and service has actually improved on Twitter. Now it's it's more fun and easier to use Twitter. So I really do wonder what all of those people were, uh, were doing. If they were all content censors, then absolutely. No wonder it was good to get rid of them all. So I don't actually buy into the idea that uh, what's happening at Twitter is a bad thing. And, and it's been interesting seeing all the, the mainstream media journalists freak out as they say they're going to suspend their accounts and, and go to you know these alternatives or, or whatever they are. I, but I th- the Eva Vlardingerbrook thing is, is interesting because she was tweeting about this a company that Elon Musk has called Neuralink, which is a, a company that basically wants to just turn people into cyborgs. It's a, a brain implant technology that the company claims will uh, restore vision for people that were born blind, will uh, focus on the motor cortex and restore full body functionality for people with severed spinal cords. Uh, Elon Musk has said that he will take the uh, implant himself. And they're basically trying to get this into human trials in the next six months. And I I mean, I would say to Elon Musk and to anyone, I, I, you know, don't even like having my cell phone on me so often. So I'm going to say heck no to the brain implant. Now, do I think that there's anything sinister about Elon Musk's motivations? No, I I don't think so. But I think that at the end of the day, he's a tech entrepreneur. And I I think he may have this commitment to free speech, or he may just be on this little lark with Twitter. But he is a tech guy, and and tech innovators have all these crazy ideas. And uh, the nature of technology is that it trends in a direction that makes technology more and more integral to human existence. So I I think it's only a matter of time that uh, people like Elon Musk are pushing for technology that that literally becomes a part of the human body. And I I don't think it uh, changes my opinion of of him and Twitter, and which is that he's doing a very good thing there. But I also at the same time don't look at this and, and think that we should be jumping on the Elon train and making him the hero of anything. He's a guy who's doing a good thing and we can be grateful for that good thing without endorsing every other thing that he's doing. And I, I think that's true in, in general is that we, we as humans, and I think conservatives are not immune to this, uh, tend to seek out hero worship far more than we should. Alex O writes, last night, Mark mentioned that show regulars, Ava, Leilani, and Alexandra will be on board this year's cruise. Will you also be on the cruise? I haven't been before, but I'm interested to know more about it. Well, I will certainly be there, Alex O, but please don't let that be an excuse to not come because I assure you I can like just hide in the corner if it elevates your cruise experience. Yeah, it's been an absolutely fantastic time, all the cruises we've done. We did uh, one in 2018. We did one in 2019. We were going to do one in 2020, and then in-person gatherings became a capital offense in much of the world, and we haven't had one until this uh, upcoming one in July of 2023. So we've got some of our fan favorites on. I'm gonna, I'm not, I'm not the fan favorite, but I'm gonna be there. Uh, Michelle Bachman is gonna be there, and Tal Bachman is gonna be there, and John O'Sullivan and his lovely wife Melissa are going to be there. But we've also got some newbies, uh, such as the aforementioned. Uh, Miss Vlardingerbrook and uh, Leilani and Alexandra. And who else do we have? James uh, Bosner, Lee Golden will be on, and he's uh, a first-timer for our cruise. And I don't believe I'm forgetting anyone else. I mean, Mark is going to be there. I guess that part was a given. But it's always a great time. We have uh, great sessions. We uh, partied up in the crow's nest. And on the 2019 cruise, I sang a duet with Michelle Bachman, accompanied by Tal Bachman, which I think is uh, alone worth the price of admission for my part. So you get lots of fun stuff on the cruises. And all the details on that are at MarkSteinCruise.com. So I would encourage you to go and check that out because it's a lot of fun. Uh, DW writes, have you ever <laughs> have you ever asked someone where they're from? If so, must we cancel you for it? This is, of course, about the uh, Lady Sarah. Hussey thing. I, it's funny you mentioned that, DW, because I actually have asked people this question. And I was told, uh, you know, a couple of years ago that it's now racist to ask the question. So uh, whenever I've met someone 
who is uh, an ethnic minority of some kind, I, who I want to know where they're from. Like, I mean, city-wise. Like, this is the thing, because I go to conferences and I'll meet people and I want to know, like, are they, did they come in from out of town? Do they live in that city? I'm not even interested in their country of origin. And, but I get so paranoid now of this assertion that such a question is racist that I have to find like very weird ways of asking it so they don't think I'm asking uh, something that has to do with their skin color. And I, you know, I was in Calgary last week and uh, two weeks ago, whenever it was, and there was someone who I wanted to know if they were from Calgary or from somewhere else. And instead of just saying, where are you from? I'm like, so do you live here in Calgary or something? Which, you know, materially isn't that much more difficult, but it's that this whole thing has to be subjected to some filter and some calculation to avoid uh, having what happened to Lady Sarah Hussey happen to you, which I, I think is is quite uh, quite unfortunate. Uh, Elisa says, where are you from? Elisa, uh, you've been canceled now. We can't have any of that. But I am from uh, Trenton, Ontario, Canada, if you must know. Uh, Tom writes, what's your guess on an off-ramp for Putin on Ukraine? And is uh, Biden and or the EU purposely prolonging it? So I, I must say there was this, you may remember, I think it was about a year, two years ago, there was that whole controversy when GameStop was being, uh, the stock of the, the stock, the store GameStop was being driven up by a bunch of these basically pranksters on the website Reddit. And they, it was driven up to such a huge amount because there were a bunch of these hedge fund guys that had shorted it that were losing you know billions of dollars by the day or something like that. And with this, when this whole thing came up, the line that came from one of the little ringleaders of this was, we can stay stupid longer than you can stay solvent which ended up being true. All of these uh, these uh, meme stock investors, they were called, could stay stupid longer than the hedge funders could stay solvent. And what ended up happening is uh, banks quickly sided with the hedge funds and suspended trading on the stock, so you couldn't buy any more of it. And I don't know, uh, you know how much the hedge funders were able to mitigate their losses to. But I think there's something to this going on in the case of Putin and Ukraine. In that at the very beginning of this, it was very much a PR war as well as a ground war. The, the amount of propaganda that was coming out from both Russia and Ukraine was monumental. And it was actually a, a bit of an interesting thought experiment if you wanted to separate yourself from the, the dangers and, and uh, you know, the, the horror of, of what was happening there. And you could say, you know, imagine if World War II had been waged in the era of social media, just, you know, seeing the way that people leverage all of this stuff and, and, you know, all of these things that were circulating that were clearly untrue, but just in the pace and the mentality were, were circulating very rapidly. And the reason I bring up the propaganda is because right now the world has largely moved on from Ukraine. I mean, you know, yes, you still have on Twitter, you know, all of the, the lefties that have Ukrainian flags in, in their bios and you still have some uh, initiatives. Like I, I just landed at the Montreal airport last week and they have at, at Montreal airport uh, a giant Ukrainian welcome table for all of the Ukrainian refugees that are landing there. And I think it's the only time you can get away with setting up a table in Montreal that uh, has a language other than French on the sign. And I, there are still some coming in here, but, but by and large, the world has moved on as they always do from these things. And I, I wonder if that's a very much a part of the strategy now is, is get it to the point where Ukraine doesn't have that world support to rely on, to uh, support it with money, to support it with equipment. And, and, you know, for Putin, who's not really interested in the casualty count, he's not really interested in the cost of the war. I think it just becomes a matter of staying stupid longer than the Ukraine can stay relevant to the West. And, and I say this as someone who, you know, whatever my grievances with the domestic situation in Ukraine are, I, I am very much on Ukraine's side in this conflict. I, I have no uh, affinity for Russia and no affinity for Putin. And I think the resilience of the Ukrainian people has been tremendous. But I also think that Ukraine became a woke calling card for people in the West that weren't actually invested in this and weren't prepared to keep up their interest and keep up their momentum as long as the war has gone on and I think will continue to go on. So I think Putin's off-ramp, short of some massive domestic uh, change in the situation in Russia, is basically that the world moves on and Ukraine is once again isolated from the rest of it. 
Uh, let's see what else we have here. Uh, Heather writes, what do you make of the World Cup in Qatar? Should countries like the U.S., U.K., Canada be participating in this farce? I, I dislike when I am forced to cover a sports story. So whenever like the Olympics or the World Cup pass onto my radar, it's usually because there's some political dimension to it. Uh, I mean, World Cup is soccer. That's basically the extent of my knowledge on the uh, the World Cup. I, but generally speaking, I, I think that all of these countries and these leaders who like to talk a big game about human rights as though they are responsible for exporting human rights around the world should be quite ashamed of how they go along with all of these dictatorships when they feel they benefit from them in some other way. And the most notable example of this is a climate. I mean, just look, a couple of weeks ago, John Kerry shaking hands with Nicolas Maduro, the Venezuelan dictator, that I believe there is still a bounty on from the U.S. of like, you know, $10 million or something. And John Kerry could have like single-handedly claimed that bounty if when he shook the guy's hand, he just like slapped a pair of handcuffs on. That was at the Sharm El Shakedown in Egypt, COP27. But when you're a partner in climate, it doesn't matter what you do on the rest of your days. And same as China. China uh, can, uh, you know, kill all the Uyghurs at once and sterilize all of the Uyghur women. But if they say they're going to phase out coal, everyone's going to say, well, hang on, China's, uh, China's meeting us at the table. They're doing some good things. And it's the same as Qatar. This is a, a country that exports propaganda. It's a country that has had very, very uh, tight connections to extremism and uh, terror financing. And it's a country that has no fundamental respect for human rights. But they want to put on a good party and the world just goes along with it. Uh, we have uh, time for maybe one or two more questions here. Rose writes, do you think Danielle Smith will be successful with her Alberta sovereignty within a United Canada Act. Okay, well, this is some really in-the-weeds Canadian content, but I, I will say there's actually a, a bit of an interesting dimension to this for people from other countries. So Danielle Smith is the new premier of Alberta, and she is actually, <laughs> she's a, a former radio broadcaster for whom I used to, I, I'm like the perennial guest host as well. So I used to guest host for Danielle Smith, which I believe makes me the acting premier of Alberta, but I have to check the constitution on that. She's now the premier and she has been absolutely tremendous. Now, I, I think she's a friend, so I, I have to qualify my bias here, but she's come out with very strong support for the right to be unvaccinated. She's against vaccine mandates. And she has also made her first order of business in her government this piece of legislation that uh, asserts Alberta's independence as a province within Canada and says we are not going to let the federal government trample on our areas of provincial jurisdiction. And why this is so important is because the, the federal government, especially on energy issues, on oil and gas issues, always, always just, you know, beats up on Alberta. And she's saying, no, we're, we're not going to stand for that. If the federal government does something that is against our interests and tramples on our jurisdiction, we are simply not going to enforce the federal law in Alberta. And Alberta, by the way, is refusing to enforce the firearms ban that the federal government has put in. So I may not be able to keep my guns if I stay in Ontario, but if I move to Alberta, I'll be able to because the police there are not authorized to enforce that law, which I, I think is a brilliant move on the part of the Alberta government. Now, I tweeted, funnily enough, a clip of Danielle Smith talking about the Sovereignty Act, and Rob Schneider, the actor and comedian, shared that, and he who is not an Albertan by my uh, research, was all for it. He said, this is how politicians should be. So I, I have to qualify that by saying what I said earlier, that I, I don't, you know, jump whole hog into celebrity idolatry. But it was interesting that what she's talking about in this has resonated beyond just Albertans. It, it's resonated with people around the world that just feel that governments are no longer representing the people. And she's come out and said she's against what the World Economic Forum wants to do. She's come out against a lot of these global agendas from groups like the UN. And I think it's tremendous. And she needs to keep that up. And I, I've given her a, a bit of encouragement, not that she needs it, when she's doing these things. Because the media just absolutely tries to eviscerate her 
for daring to stand up for individual freedom and daring to stand up for provincial interests. And I, I think that's something that more politicians in the U.S. and Europe and the U.K. could all learn a thing or two about. Uh, we have time for one more question here. Melissa writes, do you agree with the Finnish prime minister that Europe would be in trouble without the United States? Uh, th this is where I may get like uninvited if because uh, I think Mark would very much disagree with my answer. I assume he would say that uh, the U.S. is irrelevant. But my position on this is that, I mean, everyone would be in trouble without the United States. Certainly historically, I, I think it may be less and less true with each passing year. But oftentimes, it's the U.S. that's responsible for doing the heavy lifting that all of the other countries around the world uh, take for granted. And, you know, I, I look at just the amount of money that the U.S. puts into the U.N. and puts into the World Health Organization and the so-called boots on the ground that the U.S. puts in every corner of the world. And it's rarely, if ever, to support the U.S.'s national interests. It's oftentimes to support other countries, and, and it's pushed the U.S. into this untenable position where all of these other countries want a virtue signal all day, and then they wake up and say, well, how are we going to execute this? And the only one with the means to do so is the U.S. And I think one of Trump's great achievements was uh, saying that we weren't going to go along with it anymore. And I think that the Finnish prime minister is absolutely correct about that, uh, even if it, it's uh, becoming a little bit less true as we move forward. It has been an absolute pleasure. My thanks to all of you for tuning into this Clubland Q&A. As we talked about a little earlier, if you want to join us on the Adriatic Sea in July, you can get all those details at MarksteinCruise.com. But with that, I will say farewell to you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.